Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. My name is Mr. Vosliedis. Today will be a solo audio lecture. Uh, Mr. Copeland and I are in a fight. No, I'm just kidding. For the sake of expediency, Mr. Copeland and I decided to do uh, two different podcasts so we can get the information to you as quickly as possible. So I'm going to do 7-2 notes, Becoming a World Power, 1865 to 1917. Here we go. section of the notes deals with the United States becoming a world power between 1865 and 1917. This was a very transformational time for a nation recovering from a devastating civil war. Industry was on the rise, aided by new forms of capital and technological advancements. Despite the social ills naturally occurring from industrialization, the country became a beacon of prosperity for those searching for a better life. Consistent immigration guaranteed an abundance of cheap labor and business-friendly policies led to the development of modern cities. Government-subsidized railroad lines served as functioning arteries for the national economy. All of this growth necessitated a shift in how the United States defined itself in relation to other nations. Simply put, the United States was now strong enough to engage in world affairs and make slight modifications to its foreign policy made half a century before. If you recall, the earliest glimpse of U.S. foreign policy began with Washington's farewell address. At the time when French revolutionaries were begging Americans to support this cause for freedom and democracy, and England was patrolling the high seas, Washington emphasized neutrality in European conflicts and warned against any, quote, entangling alliances. Although Washington's message to the nation may have sounded astonishingly progressive amid a century of warmongering kings, Students like you would do well to note that circumstance gave Washington the luxury to express this policy. Geography afforded the United States the isolation needed to build a functioning democratic republic. While Britain, France, and Spain certainly held colonies in the New World, their presence really didn't threaten U.S. expansion. U.S. managed to secure trading rights on the Mississippi River from Spain with the Pickney's Treaty, in 1795. In 1803, for instance, diplomats capitalized on Napoleon's frustrated efforts to conquer Europe by purchasing the Louisiana Territory. The War of 1812 with Great Britain, while bloody, effectively guaranteed U.S. dominance in North America. Since America's second war for independence, the nation's long-standing interest was the continuation of acquiring territory in the New World, mostly North America, without any real commitment to world affairs, only engaging in conflict when necessary. This policy allowed for the forced acquisition of Florida in 1820s by Andrew Jackson, as we've learned, Arizona, California, and New Mexico after the Mexican War, and the purchase of Alaska in 1867 by Secretary William uh, H. Seward. 
This neutrality and isolationism did not necessarily mean that the U.S. never held any ambitious plan to build an empire, however. The Monroe Doctrine in 1823 foreshadowed future plans for establishing a sphere of influence in the Americas. Under this message, or threat, officials envisioned an empire that starkly contrasted with the ones traditionally associated with European powers. They saw U the U.S. plans to expand as a source of like inspiration and paternal guidance to smaller co countries willing to emulate or model um, after America. This high-minded rhetoric was coupled with, of course, an opportunity for economic exploitation and oppression. And this kind of reveals a schizophrenic nature to U.S. foreign policy. A model, on one hand, and a promoter of democracy, justice, and liberty, intertwined as an, a nation of, of oppression, only concerned with national interests at the expense of others. This vi vision, of course, will lay dormant until 1890. So what activated an interest in expanded abroad then? While there are several factors, we will look at two major ones for the sake of time. The first factor was the economic and political anxiety about the stability of the nation. As the frontier closed according to the Census Bureau in 1890, Thomas Jefferson's national vision of yeo men farmers fell into obscurity as fast as the Sioux retreated to the shady hills of the Dakotas. It seemed that manifest destiny was finally realized. This victory came with the price of newfound fear for a nation, however, that had been historically preoccupied with territorial expansion since 1789. What would be the next objective for the United States as it entered into the 20th century? Academics such as Frederick Jackson Turner contributed to this fear with his frontier thesis. His theory centered on the idea that America was a relatively stable and inherently democratic society, free from internal strife or violence, apart from the Civil War, due to an abundance of territory offered to potentially frustrated citizens. While other nations experienced social class conflict and revolution, our citizens could move west and start a new life based on their own individualistic merit. This phenomenon had an effect on the American psyche as a whole and led to the nation's economic prosperity. While his work was intended to identify what makes up the American population, Many expounded upon his work to worry about what would America be like now that they no longer had the opportunity to expand out west. Despite the fact that the west was largely unsettled or unpopulated at the time, the fear of becoming another revolutionary torn England or France was enough to spook Americans to look abroad for opportunity. This fear was further validated by the working and farming class during the Panic of 1893, who saw their opportunities to be a self-made man wane during the rise of banking and industry. Business leaders, too, even saw the value of expanding abroad to further extract resources and establish new markets to sell their manufactured products. The second factor for expansion beyond North America was really the idea of social Darwinism applied to an international context. As we've learned, many applied Darwin's natural theory of evolution to their own industrialized societies, justifying aggressive and domineering behavior as not only preferable but necessary to compete and survive in an increasingly modernizing world. From this perspective, it is easy to judge indigenous peoples in South America as backward or undeveloped, which granted Americans the rationale to intervene in their affairs. While it is easy to discredit this perspective now in the 21st century, when humans understand that surviving in the global arena can take many forms, 
It was hard for many, including progressives, to think otherwise, especially when this philosophy was promoted in the leading academic institutions of this time. Like the economic anxiety mentioned before, the concept of international Darwinism plagued the minds of U.S. officials. In a world where Europe was carving out colonies in Africa, evident in the Berlin Conference in 1884, and exploiting the debilitating Qing dynasty in China, America was prompted to carry out the principles laid out in the Monroe Doctrine issued 60 years ago. Books such as Alfred T. Mahan's The Influence of Sea Power Upon History in 1890 convinced American readers, such as Theodore Roosevelt, who at the time was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, to develop robust and modernized navies to maintain a competitive edge in the world. And again, this was not the outlook of only American officials. It resonated with the American electorate, media, and even religious officials excited by the prospect of evangelizing non-Christian peoples abroad. This is best reflective in the concept of the white man's burden, a term coined by the writer Rudyard Kipling, which suggests that white Protestant Christians had a moral obligation to teach those deemed as savages from foreign and exotic lands. Historians note the Spanish-American War as America's first debut in world affairs. All of the economic and political anxiety needed to be converted into action. All that there was needed left was an excuse. At the height of the nation's intense and aggressive sense of nationalism known as jingoism, the Cuban Revolt in 1895 piqued the interest of American politicians. Cuban emissaries to the United States captivated the audience of senators, industrialists, and diplomats with their heroic tales of fighting against their colonial oppressors, a narrative that resounded firmly with America's own sense of national identity. Reports of the Spanish general Valeriano Weiler's methods of oppressing the rebels, putting them into detention camps and stripping them of their dignity, shocked and disgusted the sensibilities of Americans who self-proclaimed themselves to be the protector of the Western Hemisphere. It didn't take long for rising journalists such as Joseph Pulitzer or William Randolph Hearst to feature Cuban testimony in their papers. Like most stories, there is another perspective. But an America keen on reinforcing the Monroe Doctrine was not interested in getting the full story. The media at times even coordinated with the government to promote the narrative of innocent and democratically-minded Cubans who were suffering at the hands of the barbarous Spanish. This form of journalism would later be known as yellow journalism for its exaggerated and sensationalized reported prodded by American plantation owners in Cuba who viewed the American liberation from Spain to maximize their profits. The American electorate was primed for war. All that was needed was a strong reason to intervene. After all, it would be hard to enter into a war with Spain who would be seen as simply putting out an insurrection within their own territory. A direct attack was needed to declare war. The first attack came in the form of a letter. Now known as the Delome letter, it was a letter by the Spanish ambassador Enrique de Poet Delome, personally criticizing the President of the United States at the time, Willie McKinley, in 1898. The contents of the letter, intercepted by Cuban revolutionaries and subsequently given to William Randolph Hearst's press, revealed frustration with the President, who, according to the ambassador, was unmanly and a weak bidder for the admiration of the crowd. Ironically enough, McKinley was one of the few Republicans who did not want to bring the country into war, but this letter hit at the nerve of American patriotism and masculinity. 
Shortly after, on February 15, 1898, the naval ship the USS Maine mysteriously exploded while patrolling Havana Bay, Cuba. This explosion, killing 260 American sailors, made it on the headlines of the Yellow Press, who linked the event to Spanish terrorism. Years later, forensic evidence will suggest that it was due to a glitch within the ship itself. But this was the event that American jingos were waiting for. McKinley asked Congress to declare war on Spain on April 20, 1898. Congress's affirmative reply to his message was in the form of a joint resolution, which featured the Teller Amendment a provision that proclaimed the U.S. had no intention of taking control of Cuba and guaranteed the sovereignty to the Cuban people after the war, a promise that will be half-realized as the conflict came to an end by August 13th of the same year. The war was quick and ended in a decisive U.S. victory. Intervention in the Cuban Revolution served as a pretext to annex the island of Hawaii and attack the Spanish colony in the Philippines, effectively solidifying U.S. presence in Asia. Spanish wooden vessels were no match for American ironclad steamships. The war was over in a matter of a few months. The Treaty of Paris ended the war and granted the United States stewardship over Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines for $20 million. America's entry into the world stage had begun with unsubstantiated intelligence and media reports, a striking parallel to the Iraq War the U.S. would find itself in by 2003. The Spanish-American War indicated to many officials the eroding power of one superpower and the arrival of another. The question now remained whether the United States would fulfill the same imperialistic role of the crippling Spanish Empire. The answer to this question, like anything, was mixed and could be found through the nation's interaction with the indigenous peoples that the United States now inherited. With respect to the Cubans, the United States somewhat honored the Teller Amendment with a few caveats. These new conditions came in the form of the Platt Amendment passed in 1901. This amendment authorized the withdrawal of U.S. troops on the island under the following conditions. Cuban leaders would promise to never sign a treaty with a foreign power that impaired its independence, would permit the U.S. to intervene in Cuban affairs to preserve their independence and maintain, quote, law and order, and allow the U.S. to maintain naval bases in Cuba, a permanent base at Guantanamo Bay. While this was sound and practical strategy for the U.S. desperate to maintain influence without inheriting the same reputation as Spain, this micromanagement impeded Cuban socio-political development and consequently bred resentment for Cuban nationalists. The Platt Amendment would pave the way for pro-American business interests interested in extracting resources away from a country that wanted a chance to develop on its own. Cuban anger over this form of exploitive paternalism would help legitimize the communist revolutionary Fidel Castro's rise in power in 1959 with catastrophic implications during the Cold War. A lesson, perhaps, for U.S. officials to construct foreign policy to ensure the nation's long-term interests instead of their short-term ones. The story of U.S. interaction with their protectorates is even bleaker than that of the Cubans. Many politicians debated over whether to offer full independence to the Filipinos, waiting for a chance for political self-rule. Having a sphere of influence in Puerto Rico and Cuba was one thing. It was another, big departure from the Monroe Doctrine to have a U.S. colony in the Far East. While the debate was fierce, passage of the treaty ending the Spanish-American War was of the utmost priority. Americans eventually accepted Spanish secession of their colony, which garnered the wrath of Filipino nationalists like Emilio Aguinaldo, who declared war on the U.S. in 1899. 
In a stunning twist of irony, the nation that obsessed with its own standing liberation from the imperial yoke of Great Britain effectively quashed the independence movement of another nation seeking the same destiny in 1902. It is important to note again the schizophrenic nature of the United States at this time. While the United States was enacting policies that served national interests, there were some who wanted to extend American rule of law to these areas. The legal question was abstract but powerful. Did the Bill of Rights follow the U.S. flag abroad? This question was fought in a series of court cases known as the Insular Cases, which demonstrates America's willingness to promote well-being across the world. Unfortunately, the justices ultimately decided that the constitutional rights issued to U.S. citizens would not be granted to the protectorates such as the Philippines and Puerto Rico. This, however, would be quickly resolved under the Wilson administration, which we will later discuss in this podcast. U.S. presence in the Philippines provided an economic gateway into China, which, under the Qing dynasty, had been unable to thwart the advances of European powers. The United States had been interested in the Far East since 1854 with the Treaty of Kanagawa with Japan, but was unable to justify trade relations with the isolationist imperial nation of China until the turn of the century. The man responsible for justifying trade relations in China was John Hay, the Secretary of State at the time. His strategy is best found in a series of letters known as the Hay Notes, which declared open and impartial trade relations with China. While, ideal, uh, while idealistic, this vision for free trade was largely ignored by European powers in China, it nevertheless provided the foundation for amiable relations with China that eventually formed a democratic republic of their own in 1911 by their leader Sun Yat-sen. Like the Monroe Doctrine proclaimed a century before, this outlined U.S. interests in Asia throughout the 20th century. Please go to Google Classroom to listen to Part 2 of 7-2 Notes.